Welcome to JLab, a podcast from the Civic Journalism Lab, which is a forum for professional, student and community journalists in the northeast of England to meet, learn and collaborate. It's supported by Newcastle University and by BBC Northeast and Cumbria. My name's Ian Wiley, and in this podcast episode, you'll hear highlights from a panel discussion where the focus was on mixing comedy with journalism. We're all familiar with satirical magazines, websites and TV shows like Private Eye, The Daily Mash and Have I Got News For You that deal with national and global news. But what are the opportunities for mixing comedy with local journalism, particularly in these times when many people are as likely to consume news from satirical websites as from a newspaper? So for this session, we brought together an experienced group of panellists with backgrounds in journalism, comedy and satire. Paul Stokes, co-founder and publisher of the Daily Mash website and executive producer of TV's The Mash Report. John Scott, professional stand-up comedian with a monthly political satire show at The Stand in Newcastle. Damon Green, ITN's North of England correspondent. And Steve Drayton, BBC Newcastle radio producer and vinylophile who brought his comedy variety show Mr Steve Drayton's record player to the Great Exhibition of the North. I began by asking our panellists how they mix humour with news and current events in their various roles. I mean, I've, I've worked in the comedy industry for 19 years, I've been professional for 15 years, and five years ago I decided I wanted to push towards the socio-political style of comedy that had really influenced me when I was younger, the, kind of the Bill Hicks stuff and that. And I, and I, I I knew the only way I could get good at it was to put on a monthly topical show, which I created a formula for, and it's like a panel show that I host every month. And so I, I did that deliberately to make me start writing this type of comedy. And five years later, we're still doing it at the stand. I'm going to change the name of the show uh, for the first time <laughs> next year because uh, well, the show's called Sod the Tories and Have a Nice Week, and it just <laughs> it attracts the wrong kind of audience. Uh, <laughs> 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 It's just, it just, it seems too much to the one side. So I think we're, I, I want a new, I, 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 we seem too much to the left with the show and I think we should be covering a broader spectrum in our comedy. So I'm thinking faking the news or something is where it's probably going to head next year. Uh, I'd, I'd be quite proud of the little show. And, we, and what's been lovely is the formula we created, we've, we've taken on a bunch of young new comedians for the North East and they find it really easy to write for. And, and I've been kind of busy with other writing work and doing a degree just now. So I've been able to sit back for the show a bit I've had the, the new young comedians sometimes step in and host it for me and everything when I'm not there and that'll probably happen more when I'm doing third year at uni just now but yeah, it's there as a thing when I went towards this type of comedy it was when the Conservative government were first coming in I thought there would be an avalanche of comedians going right this way and we need to, we need to take on this terrible government and I kind of charged off that way then turned around and there was nobody behind me that just isn't, <laughs> <laughs> that isn't what British stand-up did at all British stand-up just didn't react that way against it and it's, it's I, I find British stand-up quite anodyne and safe and a bit, a bit predictable at the moment I'm afraid so yeah it, it's, it's not it's not a big money-making thing that run enough to do that satirical comedy but I'll persevere with it anyway yeah, so. right. Th- thanks John <laughs> Steve tell us a little bit about your blend and uh, how you manage to bring humour to what you do and uh, both inside and outside of work so before I worked at the BBC I worked in comedy for quite a few years as a double act and then as a <coughs> excuse me as a stand-up on my own, um, and then started working for the BBC, uh, managed to uh, 
work my way up, maybe that's been a bit self-aggrandising, but um, I have recently been producing the afternoon show, which is very much a magazine-type show, and um, so I do a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, writing cues, writing little snippets, showbiz snippets. With all that kind of stuff, I always try and put some humour in it, especially with interviews, because you get... You know, for instance, you get somebody from the Theatre Royal who's been on the telly, they'll get the same questions wherever they go. They get the same questions. So you always try and wheedle out something else or write the questions in a way that will give them, make them laugh or just break the ice a little bit um, and, you know, make them stop in the tracks because then you'll get a better interview. Um, I've stopped doing that and now I'm looking after five... Uh, sorry, four evening shows that are going to be launched in August, one of which is a comedy show, which is going to be a weekly two-hour comedy show, and we are, well, I am actively looking for contributors. <coughs> I've got some leaflets, I'll give you them out at the end, uh, and in particular, I really, really want um, to represent and get the voices of young women writers on, because they are not represented in comedy at all, and especially in the northeast, and I think there's a real, from what I've seen so far, there's a real, there's a wealth of talent. Talent? It's like talent, but it's on the telly. Um, <laughs> um, so, in, in a nutshell, that's that's what I do for for the BBC. I also do some other stuff, um, but that's not really. No. 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 no you don't talk to us. He's so, he's so, he's so shy. <laughs> All right. Well, we might we might uh, come back to that, Steve. But th thank you. So we've got the guys, product, uh, these guys here, coming uh, at this conversation from the comedy angle, and then we've got the proper journalists on this side <laughs> coming at it from their hard news. Uh, Paul, uh, background. Paul, tell us a little bit about your background and how you wound up to be launching this site, uh, the Dilly Mash. Well, I mean, what, what, was, what was your route to that? Well, I was a uh, proper journalist for uh, 17 years, worked in um, daily newspapers, and then latterly I was working up in Scotland on uh, <coughs> various papers up there, including one which I set up and then closed down. Um, <laughs> it's not my fault. Um, <laughs> uh, and then after that I was, like, I was freelancing for quite a long time on various papers of the Daily Record, Scotland Sunday, Scotsman and various things. And gradually I was like I was fired by every single one of these and my <laughs> options were narrowing down in Scotland. I think I had the, the Daily Mail, but that was never gonna be a, never gonna be a good fit. Uh, so at this point I decided that I wanted to set up my own magazine and I worked with my colleague and my the other co founder of the of the Daily Mash, which is Neil Rafferty. And we were, we were like looking around at how to set up a magazine. We wanted to do something which was like a cross between like spectator and private eye, or something like that, analytical but satirical, but also like hard newsy. And we just couldn't get past the thing that we needed like a lot of resource, and we also we needed to be able to defend ourselves against libel, which would be uh, tricky when you're just two people writing this thing out of your kitchen. And so we couldn't we couldn't really come up with anything. And then I just had this kind of idea, which was why don't we just make it all up? because you can't be sued for libel. And we had a very good lawyer friend of us who basically supported this thing and just said, just be as extreme and stupid and offensive as you possibly can be, and then you're fine. So as soon as it goes veers towards anything that is uh, believable, you're in trouble. So that was the kind of thing. So we said, right, okay, we'll just do that. Obviously, we were aware of the onion in the, in the US, which had, you know, it's, uh, been, you know, uh, which is, I suppose, is the model. Uh, for all these things, and nobody else had really done it in the UK, so 
you know, that was kind of our, our starting point. And from the journalistic point of view, we ran it as a very kind of journalistic operation to start off with. So we had like daily news conferences and things like this, which is just me and Neil uh, talking <laughs> to each other and coming up with stupid ideas and then assigning the stories to ourselves and going away and then writing and publishing. But anyway, you know. We, at the time, we described it as the, uh, the press association in a parallel universe. <laughs> so everything had to be, you know, like, a, you know, it was, it was news. It was news to us. So, you know, um, that's how, how we operated it. And it was similar to what both of us had been doing before, which was writing commentary. So it was just a different way we saw it of writing commentary. So using humour to get across, um, you know, journalistic comment comment pieces um, as it's developed um, it's it's kind of become uh, less focused on the kind of like hard news satire although we still do quite a bit of that but at the moment it's quite problematic because there are only two stories which is Brexit and Trump and everyone is just sick of them yeah. uh, including us and so it's very difficult to do a lot of kind of like news satire I mean last pathetically you know the royal wedding was fantastic because it was like a big story that everyone was talking about, you know, it is a bit pathetic otherwise, but it was really good for us last week because it was just like, you know, some fresh, fresh places for us to go, so it worked really well. But what we've moved a lot into now is this kind of social satire, which is sat satirising like social tropes and class and, and things like that, which is a bit less um, <clears throat> hard, hard newsy, but it's very, very kind of, uh, it's very effective anyway from, from our point of view. And the TV show, Paul, I mean, um same kind of content or a little bit more politically? Well, actually, that, I mean, that's interesting as well because the, uh, our elements within the show uh, have also tended to focus on this kind of like more like social zeitgeisty um, satire type of stuff. I mean, it can still be very, very punchy. You know, it's not kind of, it's not all soft. Some of them are really, yeah, I mean, I quite, I quite like some of them. I think there is that kind of idea of being able to do something which is, you know, especially around this kind of like, uh, it's interesting to say about trying to get women right. We have a lot of women writers. Um, and, uh, you know, so they're coming at that kind of, uh, you know, we're writing stuff about, you know, relationships and sexual politics. And this is a, you know, this is a big story now, you know, the whole YouTube, that. So it is a it is a big story in a big area, but it's not like a you know it's not like a hard hard news area which we're normally driving into. But it's very effective. And I think some of the satire is really good. Thank you, Paul. Damon, you know, um, turned on my TV last night. You were covering the Manchester uh, anniversary yesterday. So a lot of what you do is you know proper, hard, serious reporting. Uh, is there a place for humour in what you do, and how do you how do you incorporate that? Uh, there is, uh, and I think the best way to say it is that you have to use humour as a tool. Um, uh, I've been doing the Manchester Arena anniversary for the last three days, and I've been talking to the families of people who were murdered in the most horrific circumstances and having to deal with that, and there are precious few laughs in that, and you have to be aware that there are some areas where there is no scope for humour whatsoever, but your sense of humour is a very important tool as a journalist simply because it enables, it's just an aspect to your emotional intelligence more than anything else. If you meet somebody, and you can talk to them, and you can make them engage with you, not by making them laugh, not by making them piss their drawers with, with laughter, but just by being friendly, then you can engage with them, you can get to, get 
tell their story. And I think if you can see your sense of humour as a tool, rather than as some chocolate sprinkles you can put on the top of the product to make it taste nice, you have to see this aspect of yourself and your ability as a journalist. The only thing that I've ever done that even came close to going as viral as that thing you're talking about, was something you might not even remember. You remember in the early days of the Ed Miliband leadership, he did an interview about some public sector strikes where he answered seven different questions with the same answer. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. Okay, who do you think the interview was? <laughs> yeah, it was me. And, um, it, it went everywhere. And in a, in a way, it was the best and the worst thing that ever happened to me. I would say it's the second worst day of my journalistic life. Because it was supposed to be a pool clip. You go down there, I'm absolutely nobody, I'm a junior producer, go and interview Edmund Band, just get it done over, just go and interview him, get, him, get, him, get his views on this strike. I go down there, I'm absolutely nobody, get treated like shit by him and his team. Uh, I get to feel like an absolute nobody. I thought I'd cross all these questions, all these really clever questions, I thought I'd get a good answer out of him. He, he asked, answered every single one in the same way, and it was so unbelievably depressing. I went home and I didn't, didn't want to talk to him for 24 hours. And I found out that the BBC producer on News 24 had clipped up the whole thing, rather than just the one answer, that had all my questions as well. And the whole thing went online. And it went ballistic. And um, I wrote, because I just to explain myself, I was, was, was texting me and tweeting me and saying, is that you? Is that you? Are you sound like a prat? So I, so I wrote a blog about what it was like and that went on Twitter, and then and then the Guardian did a piece about that, basically ripping me to shreds, and the comments under that were unreadable. And <laughs> it was it was it was horrendous. It really was horrendous. It was funny, but it was a disaster. And the, for, for me, the, the trouble was that all the other political reporters came up, came up and said, "Oh, that's normal. Everyone does that." And I thought, that is actually the worst aspect of this. It's the joke that I'm not in on. And it just went so very, very badly wrong. So, um, yeah, in a way, I wrote a funny piece about that because it was a way of not taking that horrendous situation seriously. And for me, that was a way of doing it. And I think, in a way, that's how comedy sometimes deals with the news, is in not taking things seriously, but perhaps we should. So uh, we, we kind of touched on it, Damon, um, but it's a question for the rest of the panel as well. When, when, when uh, does comedy and humour work best with uh, journalism? And then when uh, just, does it just fall on its, on its face? I mean, what, what, um, I mean, what, what examples have we got of that? I mean, what, or, or what, what do you enjoy? What, what, what makes you laugh the most? And then what do you just find really kind of a bit lame and just a bit weak? Uh, well, I think, I mean, I mean, agree uh, exactly with what Dave was saying. I mean, one of the things, that, again, one of the things that we say about our, our thing is, which is that it's like uh, we are responsibly irresponsible. So, again, it's like a journalistic background which we take into this thing, which is, you know, you do not make jokes. You know, there is no humour in child murder. So, you know, the Maddie McCann thing was one thing, you know, which was running a lot when we were... Uh, first starting out, and you know there, there were elements in that you think, oh, can you satirise this because you know the media frenzy and all that kind of stuff. You think it's not enough. There's not enough 
you know, there's, there's no point in, in, in trying to satirise that because at the heart of it there is a, like an incredibly, you know, just a really, really sad and terrible story. We just don't want to have anything, anything to do with it. So we do, you know, there are lots of stories where we don't go uh, along that route. But interestingly, there are things uh, where, you know, you can apply it in a way which is absolutely, uh, well, very impressive. I think Neil, uh, Neil Rafferty, who was living in France at the time, wrote a piece after the Bataclan, which uh, was on a Friday night, and on Saturday, on the Daily Mash, you just have a story um, saying, uh, Paris incredibly beautiful, confirm experts. And it was just a story about Paris, saying how beautiful Paris was, and if, you know, if an alien landed, you would take him to Paris and say, look at this wonderful city, it is beautiful. And there was no mention of the Bataclan or anything like that. And it was just one of those ways you say, and in a way, you know, you got some comments on Twitter, that, you know, whatever, how is this even funny, blah, 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 blah. And it wasn't, you know, it was application of that, that kind of um, sensibility to it. And it was just an incredibly powerful way, I thought, of doing, uh, you know, of reacting to this um, uh, uh, event in a way which was you know, different. Obviously, we could be different to how everyone else going to react because we didn't have to cover the news elements so we could do other things and just to pay credit to the onion of course who are now doing this thing and have been doing for a while which is every time there is a you know a horrendous mass shooting uh, in the US they put out a new version of their story uh, and the headline is no way to prevent this um, says only nation where it's this always happens and they just update it each time, yeah. and you know, they just keep on doing it. And that is a really, you know, you know, a really, I think it sends a powerful message, and they're, you know, they're getting their point across. And you know, it's, it gives us sometimes you have that opportunity to do it because you're not, you know, you apply a different thing. You don't do the comedic thing. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, John, you mentioned earlier on that you feel British kind of stand-up uh, and satire is a little bit anodyne. Um, so, I mean. What's your take on this? Do we, you know, do you have a duty, and you and others have a duty to kind of push it further, or until audience is almost real, real, or I mean, what, what's? I, I think British satire is, is great just now. It's just more in the library now, or I, I mean, in relation to stand-up comedy. Yeah. I think isn't it really tackling stuff just now. But then at the other end uh, of that spectrum, there's a terrible blokishness and nihilistic tendency that can exist in live stand-up where they get things brutally wrong. I, I get frustrated seeing comedians on Facebook banging on about freedom of speech and we should be allowed to make jokes about anything. When they, but they, what they're really defending is their right to tell jokes. They, they don't give a monkeys about genuine freedom of speech, like you know. And and I think uh, the the comedy community get that a bit misguided at times. Uh, I, I agree with Paul that, we, that there are some things you have to take due care with. I don't I don't believe in this idea that oh no nothing's too soon and, and everything should be allowed. I mean try and bring some perspective and decency in it as well, which I think improves the art form. So so yeah, I, th I think live stand up comedy can as well as going that boring way and less experienced hands. I think we see a lot of young, mainly male comedians, I have to, I'm afraid to say, they'll see a, a comedian that's maybe been doing it 25 years take a big subject matter 
and they'll walk a razor's edge with it and kind of get a bit of humour right about it. And there is a tendency for young men to go, I can do that, <laughs> and go clattering into it. And suddenly we're all sitting in a comedy club, kind of sitting staring at our feet. <laughs> <laughs> make the same, like, the same yeah, things, yeah. but they're being ironic. Uh, but they're being ironic, <laughs> yeah. yes, I'm being ironic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and it's yeah. like, mate, yeah. you're not, you're not, you're, yeah. just, you're just getting this terribly, terribly wrong. Mm -hmm. yeah, so. But I mean, is there a sense in which, for some of your audience, it feels like you are bringing something of, um, you know, something newsworthy to them that they may not, yeah. or, 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 I mean... Is I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll go right through the Brexit heartlands where everybody voted for Brexit and I will rip into them about it and, and make them laugh about it. But I have to... It's tricky on a, on a weekend night. It's tricky to do comedy, uh, politics on a regular comedy night like a Friday or a Saturday, but I, I'll soften them up with, for ten minutes of stuff that they'll like. <laughs> and then, then I'll start doing the stuff that I like. But I don't back off. I've been. I mean, you'd be fine as long as you get some decent angle on it and a cut and a couple of good strong punchlines on it. Even if they disagree, disagree with you, you. If you do well, you'll have a tendency to laugh along. And I, I, I make it. I'm rare as a live comedian in Britain that I'll always try and get some politics in, in my set, regardless of where I'm. But that's. But then, I've become known for doing that now, and that's that's. What so people have got used to it. Yeah. it. It was losing me a lot of work at first, but it seems to have come round again now. Like yeah, yeah. And Steve, when you're when you're thinking about these uh, this evening comedy show, and you're thinking about the audience that that BBC Newcastle has, um, I mean, do is there an appetite? Do you think there for this kind of satire or political comedy or whatever we want to call it? I mean. Or, I mean, does that make you a bit nervous? Uh, it does make me a bit nervous, partly because if you're doing some, something and a show's going to be repeated and you repeated, and you do some gags about something that's happened on... If it goes out on Friday, you do some gags about something that happened on Wednesday and it's repeated on Monday, unless they're really, really good gags, they're going, they're going to be cheesy, they're going to be... But I do think, um, especially for you know something like radio comedy, uh, we've done, we did four series of a, a like local talent, uh, local comedy thing called Jesting About, <coughs> and for the people who brought very contentious and edgy comedy to the table, and there were a couple of lines in one, and the thing was, so that goes out at half past five on a Thursday night. How would you explain what's just been heard on the radio to a five-year-old? And it's a, I think it's a really good benchmark because he, you know, there were a couple of very sexual jokes. They were, they were couched, but how would you explain that to, to somebody yeah. who didn't get it? And I think a lot of it is to do with, with, with being... I think, you can you can you can make humour out of a lot of things, but it's how you do it and how you how respectful you are of your audience. And I think a lot of like John says about I've seen a lot of new material nights, and I think a lot of um, comedians who are trying to be up to date don't realise that they've got an intelligent audience in front of them. I think they I think they look down them, and I think that especially a lot of blokes forget that half their audience is female, and I think that's a really uh, a big error. <coughs> Thank you, Steve. Damon, um, you, you give us that example of uh, a story that, that, that turned out to be funny that you didn't intend to be funny. Um, uh, does it work the other way around? I mean, have, are there instances where you've tried to to report a story with and given it a, a you know a little bit of a funny edge or a funny conclusion or whatever, and it hasn't just quite. Uh, you know, quite you, you tend to pull yourself up. You have to have a really 
really good warning bell in the back of your head that tells you when you're not being funny. You, you have to stop this side of the line. What I would say is that um, news does tend to make you look at things in black and white. I guess journalists, uh, locally, regionally, nationally, you know, come across stories every day where there's a lot of humour and a lot of laughs, and I know the press pack, you know, you can share jokes and whatever. Is but is there any way of using that humour elsewhere? I mean, I mean, I mean, have you thought about, you know, how you might, how that might work, or you know? Um, I don't think you know, you can ever get it to come across because, like I say, news is a monochrome world. Either it's a funny story like the one I did about the Yorkshire puddings last week, <laughs> or it's someone who's son was murdered at the Manchester yeah. Arena, it's black and it's white. But all you can do as a journalist is approach it in a way that informs the reader, the viewer, without doing nudge, nudge, wink, wink stuff, but yeah. just imply that this person is a human being. Yeah. You know, that's all you can do. So, so humour has a way of helping us understand you know, difficult stories in a, in, a, in a different way, a better way, just gives us another kind of perspective, I guess, on... I think, I mean, one of the things that it allows you to do is just, like, call bullshit, you know, which is, it's not always easy for a journalist to do that, because you've got to remain, you know, if you, you know, remaining within the facts or whatever, you can try, if you're writing a story, to say, you know, uh, <laughs> I think this is bullshit, the way you, you know, order your facts and all the rest of it. Within commentary, you can say it to a certain extent. And that's what we can do, we just say, this is bullshit, yeah. these guys are talking shit. Yeah, this is how we say it, and I think that's you know that's one of the kind of uh, great uh, liberating things that you get from moving into this thing from just from like pure pure journalism. A lot of what we we've been talking about has been sort of national stuff and global stuff. Um, does comedy, humour, satire work at a local? Can it work at a local or or, or regional level? I mean, are, you know, is there enough source material? And enough recognition from our audiences um, to be able to kind of make you know um, make fun of, of some of the local events that are going on. I mean, what, what do you think, John? I th I think so. Yeah. I, um, I mean, mainly because of being on this panel the day I spent yesterday just experimenting with that idea, and you know, from Pittman painters to Angels of the North to you know the Weeping Wally Biker. Uh, you know, there's there's loads of rich cultural stuff going on in any region. Um, you know, I mean, we're a, we're a smaller populous area than, than some of the regional areas, but I think you definitely can find local humour. I mean, certainly in the live clubs, I'll, I'll do stuff that has a local tinge to it, where, where, mainly in the northeast of Scotland, that wouldn't be understood in other places like, you know. But uh, I think it's it's a vein that can be tapped in, and there would be a, 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 an audience for it, like, without a doubt. Like, yeah. I, I think because there is such a strong identity yeah. up here, yeah. And there is, people are generally good-natured, so yeah, you, 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 can, you can play with the stereotype, you can, you can yeah, and do I mean, think, that. Yeah, I think it's something like this, like, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. which was extremely, yeah. extremely northeast in its, in its viewpoint when it first came out. It broadened as it went on, but it became a, a national hit. Everybody recognised what was going on in this, even though it was very particular to the northeast. Like, yeah, so. What do you think, Paul? Because you... You started out with this idea of what you were going to do was going to be quite Scotland focused. Didn't well, you? yeah. I mean, it's the thing. I mean, I you know I agree. I mean, I, I think there is, uh, um, you know, there are obviously opportunities, and clearly there is a you know uh, there is a distinct culture within the northeast and the rest of it. I've been coming here for a long time, uh, uh, which allows you to do that. Our experience was we set up uh, 
the Daily Match was really just really set up as a very Scotland-focused thing. But after a week, we'd run out of jokes about Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> and Scotland had its own parliament, and it had just had an election. <laughs> after a week, we were like, bloody hell, uh, really struggling here. Uh, we need to broaden our, yeah, our vote. But that was, you know, we were writing daily stuff, you know. Yeah. I mean, we now, you know, we produce comedy, as we say, on kind of like an industrial scale, you know. We're producing, you know, six comedic ideas, you know, written comedic stories, you know, every day. And I think, you know, to do that, you would struggle. But it, it, it depends, you know, what, you know, obviously we had plans for world domination, and we realised we weren't going to get it from just writing about um, Scotland. So, but within, uh, I think, yeah, you, you know, you could do it. I would think you might struggle to do, like, political stuff here because yeah. there isn't really, a, you know, there's not a developed kind of... Uh, yeah, it's cultural. It's more it's cultural. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've got no real attack points. Yeah. You know, they've just yeah, got local MPs. We need a devolved government, don't we, really? To yeah, get to, to get into that. And then, yeah, even, like I say, the Scottish Parliament was quite odd. Yeah. Damon, I mean, uh, is there more humour for you in, in some of the smaller local stories, or, or is that just a kind of cliche that we, when we go to a little village in I don't know, North Yorkshire, we just we try, we try to make it funny? Um, it's 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 difficult for me to say. I would say that one of the golden rules, unfortunately, you've seen that piece a little about Middlesbrough. <laughs> Is uh, not to take the piss out of any one place. Do, do, just for the for the audience's yeah. benefit, do you want to just explain that? Uh... God. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, the, there's a school in Middlesbrough which was it sent a letter out to parents telling them that their kids were pronouncing words incorrectly and could they teach them how to say words like letter and butter, not letter and butter. Uh, so I, I did that a little bit, went to the school, talked to some of the kids, and I went out into the streets in Middlesbrough and tried to get people to do it, and it was like, it was a little bit, it was, it was quite good fun. Uh, I, got, I, I did get a certain number of complaints, but not that many, about you're taking the piss out of Middlesbrough, but I think that the point is when you do a piece about a place, you have to take the piss in such a way that the person you're taking the piss out of feels they haven't been misrepresented. It, and it's hard to explain, except for the fact that would the person I've just shown say, butter, 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 would he look at the way I've done it and say, I didn't do that, you've edited that to make me look like an idiot, or have I just let him be part of the report? And without showing you exactly how it works, you've always got to have that in the back of your head. Am I being fair to this person? Am I being fair to this place? It's a really, really, difficult and important lesson as a journalist, am I taking the piss out of this person or am I letting him be part of this joke in such a way that he or she will recognise that we are laughing together rather than point the finger and saying yeah. you're a dickhead. Yeah. And, it's, and it's a really fine line to, to walk and it's, it's not always easy. That's all I'd say. Audience, um, any questions for our, or, or comments or uh, challenges, uh, maybe Adrian. I wanted to ask Paul about the transition taking the Daily Mash to the Mash report on BBC Two. How was it? How did that transition take place? But more importantly, what was it like for you working with the BBC with our strict partiality <laughs> rules? I don't think they apply to us. I'm not really. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. I've never had any kind of comeback from that. The 
the transition, I was, uh, yeah, I was dreading it. Um, we went into this with fully with the expectation that we would never ever get a television show with BBC. So I didn't really pay that much attention to it until uh, we got the commission. And by that time we'd done the pilot, there was a non-broadcast pilot, and it was surprisingly okay. So the, <coughs> the elements of our stuff melded well with the other stuff. The BBC have been hugely supportive, I have to say. Uh, hugely, hugely supportive. Um, it's all been very surprising. <laughs> and so far, after we did, I mean, we did a kind of like a soft launch almost, because we did four shows in the summer, um, which weren't our best shows, I think it has to be said. Uh, we came back with uh, six shows, and the, the only comments we had after the first four shows really from the high-ups at the BBC were, you're not being offensive enough, and we're not getting enough complaints. <laughs> <laughs> we successfully managed to address that in the, uh, in the second run with a number of things, which generated huge amounts of uh, yeah, complaints. So it's quite good for us, though, because you do sometimes see when you think, oh, that was a bit soft, and you'll see someone like a comment saying, oh, yeah, it was a bit soft, but obviously the BBC had told us. We just missed the mark slightly. <laughs> so, yeah, it works to our advantage in that sense. John? Um, you mentioned before that when you started out, you were trying to make something that was so blatantly surreal and unbelievable that you wouldn't get sued. I, mean, mm. I think it was the Sky News reporter John Craig was on Twitter yesterday because he'd repeated a Daily Mash story about Ken Livingston having a new called Adolf the That's correct. <laughs> He's had to apologise. <laughs> is it getting harder to keep up with how dumb 2018 is? Well, I mean, this, is, this has always kind of happened, that you'll get people... Uh, it used to be mainly uh, people from North America who would uh, comment you know, on our stories and take them seriously... We had a huge viral story last year, which was uh, Legally I Can Kill Him, says Queen, about <laughs> when Donald Trump comes to visit, that she could just like, behead him. And, you know. th but the, that's one of those great ones, because at the, at the background of it is there is an argument, can the Crown be prosecuted? Because the Crown is the prosecuting. So it's one of those great legal kind of things. So at the heart of it is a true story. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, some of these things, I mean, it's weird, like, Trump was very good for us for a long time. You know, you think, oh, yeah, it's very hard to satirise. But also, people were just, like, obsessed with it. You know, like, you know, it's just so bizarre. You could come up with, like, Trump stories, and they would do really well. But after a while, it just gets into that thing that people just get bored, I think. So it does become difficulty. But, yeah, never underestimate the... Um, stupidity of the audience. As a former journalist, when you see something like that disappear in the news cycle that you know is a parody, does it make you feel like, ah, I got you, or does it make you cringe for like, former brethren? Well, yeah, a bit of both, I suppose. It does make you think, God, yeah, I could easily have done that. <laughs> 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 and, you know, I don't know. To be, uh, you know to be, uh, yeah, I mean, it is a kind of weird thing. I mean, it's part of, I don't know, maybe it's something about a part of modern journalism that's like a demand to always have something something slightly different, you know, the, the approach now is, is not just about facts, so the guy, you know, who's presenting, you know, who's doing his stuff on Sky, he's not just supposed to be talking, you know, about Livingston, he's got to bring some colour to it, and he's like, oh God, yeah, this guy mentioned to me, and someone else has read it, mentioned it to him, forgot to mention that it was like the Daily Match, or something else, you know, it's gone, it's gone down a thing, we've had things, like, I remember Andrew Neil like, reading out one of our stories on, you know, on This Week as the intro, 
And I was like, you know, on the phone to the BBC the next day, he said, how do Neil just like read out one of our stories <laughs> as his funny intro? Like it was his, it's his joke, you know? I'm like, that's our story. And then they came, you know, they come down and go, oh, an MP emailed it to us and we thought it was like his, he just emailed the jokes to us and we thought they were his jokes and, and so we did it. So yeah. people don't have time to check and they're not really checking and it's in a forum where we don't really have to check because it's colour, I suppose. Going back to the olden days of being a reporter, there was always this thing about, you know, got to get a line, got to get a line. And then sometimes this thing where, you know, people say to you, oh, that is the line. And you're like, that's just bollocks, isn't it? You know, you know that, but they're like, no, but it's the line. And then you have to, you know, you have to follow that thing. If everybody else is going with the line, because it's like the one, oh yeah, you know, it's an easy hit, isn't it? If you think that, then the punters are thinking, these guys are just spinning us a line here, aren't they? So if you can stand back as a, as a journalist and say, no, actually, you know, this line is, you know, is rubbish, then yeah, I think it, yeah, it, it, it does make you kind of um, stand out. And, uh, you, know. you guys from the comedy side of things, I mean, do you look at news reporting uh, you know, because I mean, Damon earlier on has talked about you know, you, you kind of as a news reporter, you you can't do that nudge nudge wink wink thing. You, you kind of got to report just really quite straight. I mean, coming at it from another angle, can, can you see ways of doing news in a different way, or you know, are, you know, or you know, are we are we in the journalist fraternity just so wedded to this idea that we are, um, you know, uh, the only source of of impartial news? And there's only one way of doing it. I mean, do we need to kind of change what we do? I think it's hugely about sensitivity, as has been has been spoken at, because it is it is black and white. You can't go you can't go charging in. You know, like for an example, doing doing emceeing gigs around the time of the death of Diana. Mm-hmm. Normally, when something bad happens, it's a field day. Everybody's piling in there trying to top each other, and it was about six weeks. But were you, were, yeah. you know, there was that, there was that thing where yeah. you, you went to, and audiences didn't want it. A lot of audiences didn't want it. There are sometimes yeah. where audiences are waiting for you to um, and do a, it. Yeah, yeah, to Make, do it. This has to come up, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think it's really just about exposing hypocrisy. Uh, that's where it's done well. Stand up, it'll yeah. find the hypocrisy in it, and it'll do it via a routine uh, and go. And there is the hypocrisy and that, and you're all laughing about it now. That's that's when it's. For me, when it's done well, that's a, that's where my taste leans to, uh, and I see, you know, I see comedians doing that well at times, like you know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's for, for me. It's, but the big thing is try to expose the hypocrisy, regardless of where it is on the political spectrum as well. Just expose the hypocrisy. Yeah. Can I just say we tried a Diana joke on the National Report and it totally bombed. <laughs> and it was just really weird. I mean, it wasn't the best of jokes, but there was a thing where the audience clearly just did not know whether they should laugh or, should not. Laugh or not. And yeah, they yeah. just didn't know what to do. And then it was just like, once you've done that, and the, the initial gag has gone, yeah. that the rest of it is excruciating, tumbleweed experience. Are you stuck there? Yeah. 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 It, didn't, it didn't go out. And then yeah. really weird, I mean, you know, we just talked about it. And then weirdly, uh, there was another one where they, there was a Harry joke. And again, that one just didn't. And you think, Harry's normally, you know, people had taken the piss out of Harry for a long time. And then, They've rehabilitated themselves, Harry and and Wills. Wills never really needed to. And again, it was another thing where you know, again, you don't know whether it's the, you know, the the best of jokes or whatever. But again, there was a real reluctance within the audience to uh, to go with it, and it was quite instructive after all this time that you are. There's still places that people will just tense right away. Yeah. Yeah. 
Another question from the audience? Do you want to can? You mentioned that you were going, you were veering from sort of left-wing anti-Tory in your stand-up show to sort of something a little less to the yeah. left. And have you discovered a funny right-wing comedy trope that no one else? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I I think the best stand-up is left to Karl Marx and right to Hitler. Uh, I think that's when it's working extremely well, like you know. And there is some stand-ups in history that have been like that, you know. The they, they will punch down on, on the pure as much as they'll punch up the way at the establishment, like, you know? I, I'm a, I, I mean, the show saw the toys came up as a joke in the pub between me and a mate, and I proposed it to the stand and they took it, and I was like, I was just kind of joking. <laughs> but now we're doing the show for five years, so, yeah. But I, I don't want the show to be seen as just sitting on the left, which it obviously does with a title like that. So it was, once the stand said they wanted it again for another year next year, I was like, right, we're definitely changing the title of it this time. I have a panellist that comes on my show. I'm not going to name him, he's a lovely man. He always described himself as a Blairite up in the north. And he's not, he's a, he's a, he's a rampaging conservative. But I, <laughs> I, I, want him, I want him on the show to, to tackle the audience that's coming up. And he, he, and he really despises Corbyn and he writes really funny stuff about Corbyn. So I, I like him sitting beside me as well. It's, it's no wonder we've never built a great following for this show. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I, I think it's, you know, you should be right across the spectrum and stuff. And so. They said, they said last time when knowing that the Thatcherite era was in full swing, so it brought yeah. out a really nice era of anti sort of anti dominant comedy. And yeah, yeah. Came through. Has that happened again? Or it has it hasn't. Been, no, it really. Well. I thought it was going to. Yeah. I thought yeah. it was going to. Yeah. I really did think it was yeah. going to. But la certainly live comedy has. But I think up. political comedy in, in clubs is Doesn't not. When, when, when alternative comedy started, one of its <coughs> main reasons was just to have a go at the man and it, right. you know, yeah, it yeah. really was and I think the, the way comedy has developed and the way that you know like clubs what they want from their comedians it's, it's not just the club Steve it's these there's five powerful agents in London they're, yeah they're dictating but, but most I of the comedy think, I think that that is yeah. and you know Again, seeing lots there's of arena sports. tours that need fill yeah, in. There's yeah. arenas that need fill in, so, and so there is agents telling shit, you, know, telling the young comics we don't we don't want you know we don't want any kind of political stuff like that. In your stand -up. I know that's going on. Like I've heard it quite a lot. Chris, I'm curious to know. You talked about the difficulties of repetition, Brexit, Trump, and so on. Can you get into areas that might be viewed as slightly more? minority subject areas. I'm thinking here, I work for the FT. We had somebody who recently wrote something unbelievably funny, which was triggered by the Deputy Governor of the Bank of England referring to the UK economy as being menopausal, mm -hmm. and then digging his, his an even bigger hole for himself <laughs> by saying that um, it was past its productive best. Funny piece about different economic models like the middle aged crisis economy that was going off with doubtful African regimes. <laughs> is, is this something that can work for our audience but couldn't work for a wider audience? That kind of subject. I think, I mean, we. Weird, I mean, when we started out in 2007, it was in the middle of the financial crisis. And we built up a huge following in the city because we covered the financial crisis in a, you know, in a stupid way. And the, I mean, the, the time that the Telegraph wrote a story, which is like the what's it, top five daily mass stories on the financial crisis so far, and you're like, wow. And they were like paying attention, and they were, and they were saying, you know, they, the time they compared us to The Onion, saying The Onion was not doing any stuff. It wasn't doing a lot of like, on-the-day topical stuff. 
and the headline was like "Bastard Americans Ruin Your Life Again." That was one of our ones from uh, from 2007 because you know they started it. Um, and we even did uh, we we even did a story. Oh, I forget his name now. Oh God, the rogue, French rogue trader for BNP Paribas who lost 3.2 billion dollars. I can't remember his name. He ended up in jail. And we wrote a story about that, which was at the time one of the biggest stories we'd ever done. And it was, um, we were trying for days to, to think of a way of writing the story. Then in the end, we were kind of exhausted ourselves. And on Friday morning, we came up with this idea, which was that he had um, he'd made these huge uh, losses on this you know, fund as a rogue trader because he was exhausted by working a 37 and a half hour week. <laughs> and they were saying, you know, he used to turn up his, at his desk at 9.30 in the morning, he would only take like two and a half hours for lunch, and, you know, sometimes he'd be there till five or quarter past. And, you know, and obviously in London it just went nuts, because they're all in their desks at like half seven, still there at, you know, half six at night. So, but it's that kind of thing of like, but you, the stories are big. So when you're trying to do something in a kind of, you know, it's got to be niche and big at the same time, yeah. you see what I mean? So you just go into that kind of thing. Financial crisis was, was perfect. Again, because you could display some, like, you know, uh, some understanding in the way that you were, um, that you were, you were covering it. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with Newcastle University and BBC North East and Cumbria. I'm Ian Wiley. Thanks for listening.